Today we have Vanessa Peters on the show. Vanessa Peters is the chief physician officer for her medical group. In addition to managing a thriving medical practice, Vanessa is focused on investing in commercial real estate syndications. She's not only focused on building wealth for her family, but also teaches others how to build passive income and achieve financial freedom through commercial real estate. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Vanessa Peters before we start the show. Vanessa lives in California with her family. She's a physician with a thriving practice. She's a highly successful commercial real estate investor. She's an author, a pilot, and a frequent guest on many commercial real estate related podcasts. She loves teaching others what she's learned along the way. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. We've got Vanessa Peters here with us today. Vanessa, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, Vanessa and I are actually general partners together on a deal with uh, Dustin Miles and Hayden Harrington um, called the Henry in, at Liberty Hills in the Houston area. And um, we've been a part of different general partnership kind of Zoom calls, but this is the first time that we're just speaking one-on-one. So I'm interested in, in hearing about her background and, um, you know, the value that she could bring to the table. So uh, with that, how many properties and how many units are you currently invested in? Well, uh, that's definitely a moving target. Um, since I guess um, I'm invested personally in over 3,500 units, and wow. but I, I don't really uh, it's hard to quantify that way because I don't own 100 percent of those properties. But, right. um, you know, I'm personally um, a either a co-GP or an LP in about 44 investments currently. And those are most most majority of them are multifamily properties. Fantastic. Well, you know, you at one point I've read on the you're in a lot of different asset classes. So you said mostly multifamily. What are some of the other asset classes that you also have invested in? Yeah, I love to diversify. So I'm in self-storage, mobile home parks, land and land entitlement. Um, I do own a couple of short-term rentals as well. And uh, those are that's, that's about it for real estate. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, let me think. Hospitality and skilled uh, like assisted living facility. That's a lot. <laughs> so that's a lot. So how long have you been doing this? Well, I've been investing in real estate since 2008. You know, uh, like first rental property was in 2008. But I really didn't get into it in a big way until 2018. 
So what do you, why do you say that? So what the first 10 years? Well, um, the first property that I bought in 2008 was a one-off. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, a realtor friend of mine said, you know what? Okay. So I live in San Diego. Uh, okay. I'm a physician and I have a realtor friend at the time. And he said, this was right after the crash, you know, right at the beginning of 2008. And he said, you know what? Um, Riverside County in Inland Empire is going to go crazy. You should buy a house there because I had a little extra capital. And so that's just the, the county just north of San Diego County. And so I was like, OK, I'll try that. And so I bought a short sale, um, a very newish house, big house, like uh, four bedrooms. And um, and so that was all I did, though, because it scared me a bit because the values kept going down for like another two years. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I did the right thing. And so not knowing that much about real estate, I didn't pursue it and purchase 10 more like I wish I had or 20 more. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> hindsight, right? Hindsight 2020. Yeah, so I just sure. kind of set it aside. I'm like, okay, it's cash flowing. Good renters. I'm just going to like set it and forget it and got busy with life and kind of, you know, realized uh, about 10 years later that, oh my gosh, that was an amazing investment. I want to do that again. And that, um, you know, I couldn't do it the same thing at that point in time, 2018 in uh, San Diego or Riverside County, anywhere, nothing was really cash flowing. So I had to look elsewhere for investments. So we'll talk about that. I mean, like, yeah, you were scared for a couple years and you kind of questioned whether you did the right thing. Later on, you were like, I wish I had done more of this. But, you know, there's listeners out there, and I know that you come in contact with this also. There's people that want to get involved with real estate, but they're scared. They've never done it before. And, you know, it's typically a larger investment than just buying some stock, you know. Um, so, you know, how do you get other people comfortable with getting, getting in the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I put 40,000 down on that house, uh, that was a lot for me at the time. And right. it was kind of a big deal. I was sort of, there was definitely some sticker shock uh, with closing costs and all this other stuff. Um, and it was a little bit of a leap of faith. And so at that time I was, you know, this was early in the internet age and there wasn't as many resources available as there are now. Um, but now, I mean, there's so much out there that you can read about and, and how to invest in real estate that in a way that works for you. Um, so, you know, buying single family homes might not be what you want to do. Um, it's there's some risk involved. For example, when I realized I wanted to get back into real estate, I thought I would replicate what I did before because it worked so well. And um, doing a ton of research, getting a realtor, combing our area, realizing that nothing was going to work. I um, I just was like, okay, well, I still want to invest in real estate. So how can I? And finding out what other California investors were doing, going to meetups was investing in real, real estate out of state and buying homes, just like the one I did, except out of state in a cheaper market um, and buying duplexes or buying, you know, small multis, that kind of thing. And I, I, I got to be honest, that scared the bejesus out of me because, um, <laughs> you know, owning a house across the country in you know, I don't know, like Tennessee or something like that, um, where I don't know anybody. I don't know from one block to the next what the neighborhood is like, putting all of my trust in a property manager that I also don't know. Um, I was like, I don't I don't feel like doing that. Also, the returns were pretty OK, but not enough to move the needle enough for me to put those types of chips on the table. And um, and so it really depends on your comfort level, how active you want to be. 
Um, and if you want to invest, you know, uh, passively, then, you know, like I kept looking and I found syndications. And when I found out about multifamily syndications in particular, talked to some people who were knowledgeable in the business and they explained some deals to me, showed me some deals. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is really cool. OK, this is something I can wrap my head around because I'm, I don't have liability. I'm passive. Uh, it makes great returns. It's scalable. You know, I can put in as much capital as I have. I don't it doesn't add anything to my time. Whereas my thinking is every time I add more single family homes to my portfolio, that's more time that I have right. to spend, you know, more insurances. I have to make sure I've got all these things checked off. And I mean, just from owning one house, I had a feel for it and, you know, um, more asset protection and things like that. So, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for in terms of uh, the type of, of uh, investment of your sweat equity or your time. And uh, yeah, it is a chunk of change to put down. Uh, but if you're working with people that you trust, uh, getting reference from like a, a warm handoff from a friend, someone who's already done it, that's really the best way to go about it, in my opinion. And um, and also someone who's already vetted the deal, who knows more than you do. Um, I, I did it all on my own. I didn't know anybody else who had done this. It was very foreign to anybody I talked to. And so honestly, I didn't tell anybody because they probably would have tried to talk me out of it. Um, right. I told my husband, and if it went bad, you could just be quiet about it, right? <laughs> exactly. Like you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have to tell everybody that you lost all this money. <laughs> exactly. So um, I told my husband, you know, I'm hopping on a plane to Dallas. I'm going to go visit this building and I'm going to invest. And he's like, what are you talking about? You know, really? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do it. So for my first investment to make sure I was comfortable, I did do background criminal checks and did uh, a site walkthrough of the building to make sure that it was real and that it wasn't a scam. Being in right. a position where targets for scams, you know, even though I did, I sought this one out myself. But, um, you know, once I did all those things, got a gut check on all the people, the property manager and the operator and like, OK, this is this is good. I'm going to give it a try. And the, the first 50K is the hardest, you know, 100 percent. You just wiring that first 50K, you're just like, oh, my God, I hope this works. Um, and then uh, just like anything, desensitization therapy, as we call it, you know, um, <laughs> is the more you do it, the less anxiety provoking these things are. <laughs> Man, so I could relate so much. I mean, I remember the first syndication I did was, and I think it was a 75K investment and, and I wired that money and I was like, I emailed the sponsor, no response. Text message, <laughs> no response. I'm like, oh man, did I just wire this to Never Never Land? And it was somebody that, like, like you said, I had done my due diligence. Like, I had talked to people that had referred me to, you know, like, I knew them personally. They had a great reputation. It was in a growing market. All these, all the right things. But still, once you hit that, you know, wire button on that first deal, it's like, holy cow. And, and then after that, you know, now I can, you know, get a deal and I'm interested in and, why are the funds? And I don't even think about it. Like it's, um, but I think the, the big difference too is once you see the returns come back, you know, like it wasn't in the first two years with your single family house. It was later on when all of a sudden you saw the appreciation and, you know, that you were like, holy cow, I just own this and I'm making all this money. Um, you know, with the syndications, you know, putting in, 50 grand or hundred grand. And then all of a sudden it doubling in two, three, four years, you're like, I wasn't seeing that in the stock market. 
you know? And so all of a sudden you get that confidence level. Um, not to say that every deal is going to, is going to be a home run. Um, but you know, you're buying hard assets, you know, and, um, I don't know. Uh, let me ask you that. Like I asked somebody that you're, you're invested in 44 deals. Um, I invest, I asked somebody that's invested in 40 or 50 deals. Have you ever lost money in a syndication? Have you? Yes, I have. You have. Mm-hmm. Your, your original capital, all of it? Well, it's ongoing, but I believe so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. stinks. Yeah. Sorry and, to hear that. No, and I don't mind talking about it because it's a learning opportunity, right? Yeah. So, well, so what, what, what could you have done differently? Yeah. So, a um, couple things. I think what, what happened is um, two years ago in the summer of 2020, I did a transfer of money from a defined benefit plan to a self-directed 401k. So I had some money to play with. And I was a little excited about that to have my hands on this half a million dollars or whatever. And uh, for me, that was a lot of money and I wanted to invest it. So I was part of an investing group. And when the deals popped up, if they looked good, I invested. I, I feel like I was a little rushed. And so much so, like you talked about how you wire 50 or 100 grand and don't even think about it. Um, I actually lost track of some of the paperwork because I was doing so many um, wires in, a, in like a two week period. Uh, I had a little mini heart attack a couple months later when I was like, I haven't accounted what for 50. What the heck did I do? I haven't accounted for 50 grand and where did it go? And I, I, because sometimes when you invest in a deal, it has a certain name, right? And then when you wire, it's to the legal escrow whatever company or whatever. Is, right. And it's not the same. And I was, I, like I said, I, I felt a little anxious because I wasn't sure how to line it up. I eventually did. But during that time period, I actually did two investments that haven't worked out. And, um, and I can point the finger at other people, but ultimately it was my choice to do the investment. And, um, and I, I feel like I got a little bit swept up in the group. And so while I just said, Hey, invest with people you trust and invest with, you know, people who've done other due diligence, you can't just rely on other people to do all the due diligence for you and just take it at face value that this is a good deal. Um, so I invested in one opportunity that was a hotel conversion, like a Hilton hotel conversion. And um, basically I, I put a hundred in to be transparent and the deal has never closed. <laughs> the so, deal has never closed. Right. And so, um, you know, for a few months, it's like, okay, but you know, it was in the middle of COVID and that was part of the pitch was that, you know, we're going to reposition this hotel we're going to sell it off in like three years. You're going to make 30% returns. Number one, those returns are high. And if you're getting those kind of projections, that should have instilled more caution in me than it did. Okay. Um, and then number two, I didn't do a lot of due diligence on this operator. I might have turned up some nasty stuff if I had. Um, and number three, I was just kind of going on the advice of the, the this group I was in. You know, they had an advisor and they gave me advice and I just took it. Um, after about a year, it still hadn't closed. And I kept, you know, every so often I would ping them and I'd be like, what's going on? And they'd say, oh, you know, this and that, escrow, da, 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 seller, COVID, excuses, basically. And then in September of 2021, I sat down at my computer one night and I just typed in the operator's name. <laughs> and this whole flood of 
of hits was about fraud. Oh no. And, really? and yeah. And so it, this is, was fraud and it is fraud. And so I don't expect to see my money back. Um, I am going to the FBI and I'm collecting information about it right now so that I can take it to them. Um, not that they don't know about this guy already, but, you know, just to, to make sure, sure that it doesn't happen to other people. The kicker is that it's in a 401k. And so I don't even get to write it off as a theft casualty loss, which you can do if you are ever scammed. You can write it off if it's in cash. So um, but I feel like, you know, it's a responsibility that I have to try and make sure that this person has brought to justice for, for what they're doing. And I'm actually working with a private detective who has traced back the ownership of this hotel and found out that it's still in the same family ownership that it's been in for many years. And it was never even for sale. So it's like that oh, kind of a scam. Right? Holy cow. Really? <laughs> so now you you go back to the group. I mean, the group is the one that advised on this. Like now, don't they lose all their reputation? The the group and the advisor. Because I left. I, you, I left the group. Yeah. You're not the only one that gets hurt, right? There's other people that they were, you know, sending that way too. Mm -hmm. um, so, did they just make a bad call? Yes. Yes. They they didn't have the. Uh, parameters of due diligence in place that they have been, have improved over time. I, I left that group before I found out that this was, you know, a scam. Um, but I've gone back to them and advised them of what I found. And basically I'm the one who found the problem and they were like, Oh my God, you know, like nobody else had done that's, any, any kind of like checkup on these guys. Scary. And I wasn't expecting that response because the other guy that I asked that was in like 40 or 50 deals, he's like, Darren, I've never lost on a syndication, I, my capital. I've had deals where the projections were off. You right. know, like they say right. they, the cash flow was going to be 8% and I got 2% or I didn't get anything. And then until, you know, or they said it was going to be a five-year deal and it turned out to be a seven-year deal, you know, but I, I, or they were going to double my money and I didn't double my money, but I got back, you know, some kind of gain. And so this is the, like, I, I'm, shocked that that happened and it does it opens our eyes that like look i'll have people contact me off instagram and they're like hey darren you want to partner on a deal and i'm like i don't even know you mm -hmm. like how am i gonna you know and not only am i gonna invest but like how am i gonna bring investors to that deal when i don't even know know you like i'm like next time you're in dallas like let's get together for coffee yes. and like yes the people that i'm investing with i typically know for several years you know right. before i i even you know move forward with um and you know you hear at, and that's another benefit of going to meetups and and networking and you know you hear people's reputations from other people and that builds confidence and right um Wow. Yes. So as a, as you know, as a learning experience, um, you know, I have chosen to only partner on deals with people that I know very well or have a close friend who has worked with them already, you know, and uh, really have just limited my network of operators to a very small number uh, for my investors investments for my yeah. own. Of course, I branch out on my own and do things that I might be considered a little more risky, but but overall, I'm, uh, you know, very limited in, in who I partner with, you know, for that reason. But I also tell investors um, that 
the only way to really lose your capital in a syndication is what happened to me. Broad. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, like you said, it's all those other things. It doesn't perform as well. It doesn't quite hit the performance, but you've got a right. tangible asset. It's not going to just poof, disappear. Compare right. that to the stock market. Your stuff can poof, disappear. And that's not yeah. fraud. That's perfectly legal. That's not illegal. And what's, what's weird is the difference. I think the difference between, like I had, a, you know, somebody call me and say, hey, Darren, man, I, I, I lost a million dollars in the stock market in the last, you know, in the last several months, whatever. He doesn't put blame on like a person, right? But if he was to invest in a syndication, whoever brought him that deal is going, is going to be the face of mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's so different, you know, between, oh, the stock market. I just lost, you know, a million dollars in the stock market versus that guy took my money. Right. You know, like, right. and so for me, I would say that, um, and now I've got another business that trades loans between banks. I've been in that business since like 2002. I do think that there is, just personally from my standpoint, I think there is one other risk in in these multifamily deals or, or real estate deals um, besides fraud is the reset risk, like on the loan. And a lot of people don't bring it up, but I'm just super hypersensitive to it because in that 2008 to 2010 timeframe, you know, I was talking to a lot of bank presidents and chief lending officers and the deals that went bad were the ones that like, you know, cash flows down, cap rates are up, valuations are down and the loan comes for, you know, due, mm -hmm. you know, it's a balloon and nobody wants to lend. And, you know, either the owner or the syndicator, whoever is the, the lead on the deal it's impossible to raise capital at that time. Nobody right. wants to, you know, everybody's scared. So holding everything they have. So at that point in time, there's risk that the deal could be taken by the lender. And I'm a big believer that if you have enough running room, then, you know, rents, real estate will come back, but everything if, is cyclical. If it's cash flowing, right. Right. If it's cash flowing, mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a matter of being able to withstand that downturn and then come out the other side. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's what pe people are talking about it now, you know, with interest rates going up. Absolutely. Yeah. People are talking about, I'm, I mean, I've talked to a number of syndicators that are like, I'm looking for some of those deals that were bridge loans maybe two or three years ago and they're coming due soon. Interest rates are you know, double what they were and, you know, is the deal going to pencil and right. are they going to be able to, to refinance or is that going to be an opportunity for us to pick it up? Right. Right. Um, so I haven't seen any of those deals. You know, I've, I've, I've heard from brokers and from syndicators that it's getting tougher, but, and those deals are coming, but I haven't seen any. Have you mm -hmm. heard and seen any of those deals nope. come? No, nope. come I think it's a yet? little early yet, but I think. Right. That uh, the time will, time will tell in the next six time months. Time will tell. Next six or 12 months. So you are a physician. So are you, are, do you still practice? I do. I'm here in you the do. office right now. Yep. So mm -hmm. what type of physician are you? I'm a family physician and um, I'm also the um, chief medical officer 
for a group, the group as well. That's like a leadership role, like the administrative side. So in this space, the space that we're playing a multifamily, like, you know, building no like, and trust is a big thing. Well, being a physician, like you have to do that right from the get go, like build trust that you mm-hmm. know what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So you kind of took that and parlayed that into the real estate world. So where, where's your focus on the real estate world? Well, um, it started out that I was looking for my own personal investments. And so, you know, when I, when I had this realization in, in 2018, um, I had been basically plotting my net worth over the last eight years. And it was definitely going up, um, but it was going up because I was saving almost half of my income. And I had it all in the stock market, just like I was told to do, and, uh, and in savings. And so when I did a graph and I saw this really very straight line, it was going up. It was in a bear market. I mean, a, a bull market. Things were improving, um, but it wasn't at all exponential. And I really thought after saving for eight years, half my income, putting right. it in investments, not just sitting under my mattress, um, that it would have gone like more like a curve upward, you know, and uh, that was my wake up call was like, what? This is I'm in my I'm. I'm 40 now. What am I going to do if I if if I keep on this trajectory? I'm going to be working until my mid 60s or later to really reach that kind of freedom number that I was kind of looking for. And so that's when I realized I needed to switch gears and look for asymmetric risk reward, meaning like you know low risk and high reward. And I knew that that was real estate because like everybody else, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, but I read it back in like 2002 when I just got out of residency coming down here to the States. I came from Canada originally, came down here to work. And, um, you know, I read it and I got it. But at the same time, um, it was like, I can't focus on that right now. I'm starting a new career. I just got out of medical training and I have a a large amount of debt and can't just pivot and start investing in real estate. So, you know, it kind of, but that kind of like was in the back of my mind. That's what I need to do. And so um, like I told you, I went through all these iterations to try and figure out where to invest. And once I started investing as a limited partner, I started getting those checks in the mail. I was completely hooked. So I was like, this is it. And I invested in a bunch of things, like six six different things in six months. And then as uh, is my personality, I tend to get sort of obsessive about things and um, <laughs> just really dive in. And one of the operators I was working with was running a coaching program. And so he but you know what? We're looking for people who want to do this as for kind of fun. And I thought, you know what? I always felt like I'd be in real estate if I wasn't in medicine. You know, that would be kind of my thing that I enjoyed the most. And I thought this was a way that I could be a little bit active and also, you know, spread this word because I couldn't stop talking about how great this stuff was um, to anybody who would listen. And so I started raising capital um, on some nice deals and just bringing in friends and family. And really the goal, though, for me was and still is to invest in every deal. So that's why I have 44 syndication investments in my personal portfolio, because I closely track my passive income. Um, I have a spreadsheet that says, okay, this deal is going to give me this much income. And so while I'm not completely focused on cash flow, I've actually been very heavily focused on equity. Um, I've pivoted also to looking at cash flow so that I can uh, work towards that number, which would replace my active income. And sure. whatever method to get me there might include, um, I've learned a lot about debt and how debt will get you to your passive number. 
a lot quicker than equity will. Um, but I like to see a balance of those things in my portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I the same experience happened with me that happened with you. It's like initially, and I think it's probably with a lot of people. Like initially, you're looking for yourself, your your and your family. You know, how do I build wealth? How do I put us in a position to be able to you know be comfortable later in life? And um, but you don't realize that there's like a ripple effect once you start learning how to do it. One, if you've got the bug, you want to tell other people. Mm -hmm. And then two, other people see that you're successful and then they want to learn. So you don't even realize it in the beginning, but you know anybody that's taken their first investment, like initially it's just about you, but two years, three years, five years down the road, now you're teaching you know your brother and your aunt and your uncle and your parents and like, there's all your network, you know, is, and it just is exponential how many people you can help. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I, I think it's awesome that you look, you're, you're a physician. <laughs> you, you guys are like bred that way to, to help other people. I mean, you're right. And, and so now you're not only doing it in the health field, but you're also doing it in the financial field. Yeah. And, you know, helping other busy professionals, you know, that's my, you know, soft spot is for other people like me who are, are working our buns off uh, every day, helping other people and patients and making good money, but also paying a ton of taxes, right. especially where I am in California. And just really not just on that treadmill of like, buy a big house and get a big deduction and go to private school for your kids. It's just, you know, all these expenses so that then they feel like they're kind of um, drowning and also very much golden handcuffed to their high paying job because they can't, they can't stop. They have way too many expenses. Are most of the investors or a large percentage other physicians? I would say yes. Um, I'm in a lot of different networks though that are not physicians. So I would say maybe 40% of my investors are physicians, um, but then they refer me their family members who are in, you know, business or in tech or, you know, whatever. But Many of them are working professionals, high W-2 accredited investors. Right. I've had a few um, physicians that are have been on that are kind of in that capital raising uh, role. And what they've described to me is that doctors tend, they read a lot, but they're, they're focused on reading stuff that's going to help them in the medical field. And so a lot of them don't want to dedicate time to learning about real estate and other financial investments. They want to spend their time on their field of practice. And so um, a lot of them are on that hamster wheel because of that. Um, right. And so, they don't, they, they might have an, uh, a, like a, an idea that it's a good idea, but they don't, you know, know enough about it and they don't have any inclination to learn more which is where someone like myself comes in and be like, hey, I can educate you. You can read my book. You can learn about it in a very quick fashion. And then I can present you deals that are vetted by me and I'm investing in it as well. So that you don't have to do a whole ton of legwork and find someone online that you trust to give your money to. Right, absolutely. So you mentioned that you wrote a book. Tell us, tell us about the book. Like what's the name of it? What, what's it geared towards? Sure. Uh, 
You got a copy? Show it to us. I got a copy. Us. Yeah, yeah. All so, right. Uh, here we go. The Busy Professional's Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, a physician's yeah. path to building wealth, creating financial freedom, and leaving a legacy. So uh, this is not a big book. Pretty short. And um, I, I wrote it so that you could probably finish it on a flight, you know, three hours maybe. And um, and it's a basic primer on syndication. So for those of you out there who know a lot about syndication, it's probably not that helpful. I do dive into my story a little bit about how I got to where I am and some of the pitfalls that I've uh, had and run into and go into a few different asset classes. Um, but it's a, it's really nice too for um, folks that are new to it, for me to have them read that and then we can chat um, in more depth about things. Absolutely. So where can people find that book? Oh, it's on Amazon. Um, you can buy it in paperback and also on Audible. Okay, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um that's just another thing. When you started investing, did you ever think you were going to write a book about investing? Heck no. I mean, right. I mean, that's the thing is like, in the beginning, it's just about building your own wealth. And like people that are listening right now that haven't purchased their first investment, you're just thinking about how do I get that first investment? But I'm telling you, like a year, two, three years down the road, you're like, you're going to be looking for ways how you can help other people. And Vanessa took the time to write a book to help other people. That's that's awesome. So before we hit record, we were talking and you know, a word, you know, a phrase that was very strong to you is financial freedom. So what does that mean to you and you know mean to other people? Yeah, I I know that, you know, you can focus on the numbers and being a person who likes numbers, it's 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 easy to do that, to be like, I need X amount of dollars to quote unquote retire or X amount of cash flow to, you know, retire or leave my full-time job. And, um, and I do enjoy tracking that. Um, however, my perspective is more focused now on cash flow than that net worth like pile of money, because the old school thinking is that you save several million dollars or more, depending on the lifestyle that you want, and then you stop working and then you spend it down, you know, and then you die. So, you know, you might have a little bit to leave to your family, but, you know, probably not. And the opposite of that is building up a bunch of assets that provide cash flow. So you transition from earning money to living off the cash flow from your investments, which continue to appreciate in value. So in essence, your net value keeps going up, even though you're not even trying anymore. You're just managing your own investments. And we've all heard of the cash flow quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. And, you know, that that lower right corner is the investor corner. And that's where I ultimately would like to be. It's just someone who full time manages my own investments and uh, and have philanthropy and a legacy to leave for my family and for other for other people. And so but freedom, while I'm still around. You know, what it really means is, is not about a dollar number in the bank, but it's about being able to have freedom of time and freedom to do the things that I want when I want with the people that I want. I think there's a Tony Robbins quote that's similar to that, <laughs> you know. Um, so it was like when I want, where I want, with whom I want, whenever I want, you know. Right. So that's that's freedom. I'm not I'm not there. You know, it's it's hard for me. There's only 24 hours in a day and I like a lot of the things that I do. You know, and so, but those things require time commitments. And so while I like medicine, do I like doing it 40 hours a week? Well, not necessarily, you know, I'd like to have some more freedom. Um, and I feel like 
going back to the numbers, when you get to a certain number, you can say, okay, you know, I'm going to work part time and I, I get to keep doing what I love, but then I get to also do other things that aren't medicine related that I love. Right. That's a big mindset shift. Like what you said. I mean, I think most of us are taught that just build up to that pile of money. Right. And then I'm a big reader of books and I was reading one book and it's like, nobody wants that number to go down. So even like when you start to pull from it, like retirees, like they don't like to see that number go down. So they live extremely frugal because they're fearful that they're going to be taking out too much and, and they don't like seeing it go down. So the other mindset of looking at the cash flow, like you said, even if you're not trying, the assets are appreciating. And I think it's a completely different way of looking at things. And um, so I was always the guy that would save up money and pay for a car with cash. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, you know, what I thought was the right thing to do. And then I talked to other real estate people and they're like, well, one, you could get a tax benefit if you're using it for, you know, uh, business purposes. And then two, like once you spent that money on, on that car, well, it's just going to depreciate versus if you had invested that and you get cash flow from that and then you use that cash flow to buy a car, then you've got an asset that's appreciating and you're still getting the car that you want. I'm like, that's a whole different way of looking at it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, meeting other people that are wise, that's the other side benefit of doing this, you know, is that you network with other people and then you learn, you know, well, how are you doing it? You know, how are you getting the tax benefits? How are you, you know, leveraging the, the capital that you have? And then you learn different things. And some things you may say, you know what, that's not for me. And other things you're like, holy cow, I didn't know I could do that. That's so smart. And it's just an education thing. Um, so in any event, talk about mindset and how yours has changed as, as you've gone through kind of the oh, yeah. world. A ton. I mean, <laughs> um, I actually went through a period of time during that eight years where I was saving half my money. And really what happened was when I um, was in my mid early thirties, I talked to my financial advisor at the time. And I said that I wanted to retire when I was 45. And uh, he kind of chuckled a little bit and he's like, you know how much money you're going to need? And I was like, I have no idea. And he said about $4 million at the time. That's what he said, including, you know, inflation, 4% safe withdrawal rate, da, da, da. And so I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to work hard to get to that by 45. So I better get to work. And that's what I did. I worked hard. I saved a lot and I got extremely frugal. Speaking of fear and frugality, I went a little bit overboard. I mentioned earlier that I get a little obsessed about things. So um, <laughs> when, when I got obsessed with frugality, it was a sad time in our lives. I, um, I was at the library. I wouldn't, I would read at Barnes and Noble, but I wouldn't buy. I would go to the library. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that even the $20 book that can, that can make you way more money. Like that was a big, I a would big read expense. it. I right. would read it right. while I was there. And, um, 
take pictures. You know, I'm serious. <laughs> it was bad. And um, and I was so frugal. I got caught up in the fire movement, the financial independence, retire early movement, and thought that that would probably be the way to go. So I bought books about, well, I borrowed books about how to, <laughs> how to live on, you know, a hundred dollars a month on groceries and, um, you know, how to, it's just kind of nuts. And I went through this period where we bought solar panels and, um, they weren't functioning as well as I thought they should in terms of our bill. And so I went around and measured the electricity of everything in our house with this little thing you can plug into your units, into your like wall sockets and then plug the appliance in. Like, this is how much the blender uses. Can you believe this? You know, <laughs> this is what the TV does. And all well, these. What did, you, what did your husband say when okay, you, when well, you go, into, get, the, when you go into this like mode? I mean, I get to that. So I was tracking all the little blinking lights in our house that were on at night. And he's a musician. He's got like a ton of gear. There's big computers. There's a studio thing. And, and I, it's driving me crazy. It was eating me alive. I started tracking. <laughs> our solar panels and how much they were producing. And I was, you know, getting after him and my son about stuff. And one day he just turned around and he's like, you need to get some help. You have a problem. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he was like, he, he literally canceled a weekend trip we had. I had to go away by myself. It was like a continuing medical education thing. And I went by myself and I cried and I was so sad and I was upset. And then I got some help. We got some therapy. And then I realized, okay, I was like way down this weird rabbit hole of stuff that was going to save me like 50 bucks a month, maybe, you know, like we're not talking big dollars here. And, you know, it was like, I'm joking about it, but it was a sad time. You know, it was, it was a tough time. And I needed to kind of like back away from that and just, you know, see the forest instead of the trees, because I was really just focused on the minutia of, right. you know, and that goes back to the, um, you know, the financial guru who recommends the $5 latte thing, you know, it's like, right. Bach, Richard Bach, I think. So it's like, you know, if you don't buy that coffee, then you're going to get rich. No, that's not it at all. It's the big decisions that are going to make you rich, which right. is, you know, getting a low, low uh, rate on your mortgage and, you know, not paying it off and using that money for something else and, and leveraging things and being smart about it instead of um, squirreling away small dollars to pay off things that, you know, really uh, benefit you to not pay them off. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, there, there is, there's a lot of books on like the, the frugality and, and uh, movements and um, don't have any debt at all and all that and uh, pay off your mortgage and, you know, then you meet other people that you're like, well, how'd you grow your wealth? And then they tell you all the different ways and you're like, well, that makes sense. Like, why aren't pe more people doing it? You know, and, and it's, you know, getting out there, this is advice to people listening. Like you heard Vanessa say it, you're, you know, you've heard me say it before. You got to get out and meet other people. You know, you have to go to meetup groups. You have to go, out and meet other people that are doing things that are, you know, learning from that and then taking action and actually see how it's changing their life. Right. And when you right. see that, then it puts a little bit of a spark in you like, all right, they did it. I can do it. You know? And, and another thing is that not just real estate people. So one really big turning point was that I found personal development and, you know, Sounds like a 
difficult to outside people sometimes when you join a personal development group and get kind of involved in it. But I met so many cool people through this group that I joined. Um, it was I met um, the Hal Elrod's group, um, oh, okay, which is cool. best best year ever uh, event, and I went to that, and it was a big deal for me to go because it was five hundred dollars, and it was in my own backyard. I didn't even have to go anywhere in San Diego. And I thought about it for three weeks before I put down $500 to go to this three-day event. I mean, it's insane, right? Um, but when I got there and I met all these other people that were doing cool things, they were outside of my field. They weren't doing real estate necessarily. A lot of them do, but not all. And um, and they were not doing medicine. And it really expanded my horizons in an excellent way. And joining their mastermind so again, join a mastermind, be around people who are doing great things because you want to surround yourself with people who are ahead of you. And um, and everybody there seemed like was writing a book, which is one of the reasons why I was like, oh, OK, I can do this. This is something that and they showed me the path for how to get there. And we live in our little bubbles, you know, where we kind of have our group of friends and we have our work and we might have kids and those friends and um, we do our kind of thing every day. And it's very easy to get very comfortable with the people around us and not push a, push our edges a little bit to where we might feel a bit uncomfortable. Like the first time I did a podcast like this, I was absolutely terrified. I had all my answers. <laughs> I had my answers all written down on a, on a piece of paper and I was trying to read it, you know, and it's like, it, it was scary. And, but that's how we grow is by pushing those edges because there's no way to grow otherwise. And we just become stagnant. I completely agree. Like, look, I'm a host of a podcast and, and my, my kids would walk by like when I was practicing, I had no idea what the heck I was doing and, and they would be laughing at me, you know? And, um, but I agree with you. Like, so you brought up Hal, Hal Elrod. Um, you know, I bought his book, The Miracle, Miracle Morning, Morning mm -hmm. and I had it like for a while. And I was like, I don't even really want to read this. Like I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be, you know, get up and make your bed in the morning and you're going to feel better about yourself. And, you know, like uh, I, I thought that that was going to be like one of those types of things. Well, I finally decided to read it and I'm like, holy cow, like this is, this is great. And then I got my wife. And so now we're only, I don't know, maybe we're 45 days. In. It's a 30 day challenge. And we're maybe oh, nice. past the 30 days. We're like 45 days, but it's very, very cool because it's all, it's a bunch of different things that you could focus on like, you know, reading the, a book of the Bible every day. Well, some days I would do it and some days I wouldn't. But now this was like dedicated time for reading, dedicated time for, and I, I, so I would do it every day. Um, pushing past your boundaries. I was doing a, a podcast interview with another guy who he told me something crazy he had done. And I was like, after we hit stop on the, you know, on the recording, I was like, you know, I really want to go on one of these motocross, like off backcountry, you know, deals where I don't even really know anybody. I just go. And he's like, you got to do it. And I was like, oh man, now I'm like going to be held accountable. And talked yeah. to my wife and two days later I booked it. So the end of September, I'm going to where am I going? I'm going to Yosemite. I'm flying into California and we're going to go through Yosemite. It's like a three day nice. deal and they take away your phone and like you're just in the country riding motocross. And so I don't know, but like it's scary and exciting at the same time, but that's yeah. part of like what's 
great about life is when you have that both, like you don't know how it's going to turn out, you know? Right. 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 Another one of my favorite quotes is, uh, you've got two dates and a dash, make the most of the dash. So the two year, the, 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 the day you're born, the, the year you die. And there's that little dash in the middle and that's your whole life. Make the most of it, you know? So that's, that's something that I've been living by as well and doing things that I really never thought I would do because I thought they were too hard or too expensive or I was too old or they're too scary. And one of those is becoming a pilot. So that's like my passion that I just love, but didn't know that it was even possible for me to even consider doing that. Are you a pilot now? Mm -hmm. You are? How long did it take you to become a pilot? So it took me six months to become a private pilot. See, I thought it would take years and cost millions of dollars. And I just thought it was impractical. I spoke with an investor who was a pilot and I said, you know, I've always kind of thought about doing that. You know, like I was almost scared to say it. And, and, he, and I'm like, but I'm probably too old and da da da. And he's like, no, you're not too old and it won't take you that long. And here's how you do it. And he just gave me a quick little rundown, go book an experiment, um, an experienced flight and go to this school. I know this school, go there and you know, and I did. And I was like, this is really cool. I like this. And so I'm doing it, you know, and is it scary? Well, yeah, it kind of is, kind of is, but that's part of growth and, and, and growing as well. That is so cool. Where do you fly? Um, I fly, well, mostly just locally here in, in San Diego. So um, once I get my instrument rating, which is going to be at the end of this month, um, which is where you can fly by reference to instruments, so you don't have to be able to see as much. You can go through clouds, mist, that kind of stuff. Um, then I'll be able to go further. You know, I'd like to explore, you know, the Southwest. And then as I get more comfortable, maybe go farther. That's so awesome. So listeners, like, it's not just about real estate investing. Like, you get around other people that push you to, you know what? We all have, like, this gut sense of what we want in life, like, you know, what you want to try. And we let fear hold us back, you know, and there's people that sometimes they go through their whole life and there are certain things they never tried and they have regret and you don't want to have regret, you know, um, that's fantastic. Hey, talk about, so you're on the capital raising side. How do you, how do you source deals? Well, like I mentioned earlier, I only have a very select number of operators that I work with. And so I don't really source deals. They, they ask me when they'd like me to participate. And they so, ask you, yeah. how did you get to develop those relationships? Just through networking and working. Like, so the original group that I was um, part of, you know, we were like a group that was being mentored or coached, uh, started with those folks. And then we all kind of branched out to do our own things. So but those are my kind of core connections. And so if they work with an operator and they're looking for new capital raisers, they'll refer me and, you know, meeting other people through conferences. Um, like I just went to the MFIN con and we, we, you were there as well. And, you know, we meet people through, through those types of things. But again, I'm very hesitant if I just met somebody to bring in investors, um, unless they've got a high profile and I've known them through other people. Right. Because the reality is that there are people just like what happened with you. There are people in my network and your network that are busy people, high net worth individuals who have cash and, you know, want to invest and like the asset class, but they don't have time to vet the operators. They don't have time to vet the markets, you know, that 
They don't have time to vet the deals and learn everything about it. Um, so there's a bit of trust that you, you know, you as the capital raiser are doing a lot of that due diligence for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes both ways. You know, I met um, a team member from that original group at MFIN and we hadn't seen each other in years. And I was like, oh, great, cool. And then he had a deal and he told me about it. And I was like, okay. Great. I was not planning on investing 100K coming here this weekend, but here I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I can't turn it down. This is a great deal. And I implicitly trust him because we've known each other for years. Yeah, that's that's huge. Um, So I'm going to go back in time. When you were a child, like, did you know that you were going to be a doctor? Did you know that you were going to be successful? Did you know that you were going to be working towards financial freedom? Well, as a child, I was very studious, you know, I have to say that I was the, the the kid who, you know, always got straight A's and was very, very focused (laughs) on my schooling. Um, I always wanted to do very well at that. Was that self-motivation or or trying to make parents happy? 100%. It was was like, I would, it was like self-flagellation if I got a B, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it was like bawling and crying. No. um, And I just knew that I was. I knew I was smart enough to do something good in life, but I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my world at all, at all. And I, I grew up in a small coal mining town where everybody was actually um, employed by the mine, you know? So my stepdad was a foreman at the mine and everybody else was worked for the mine somehow or supported it somehow. And I didn't really know anything about uh, entrepreneurship or anything like that. I don't even think there was real estate entrepreneurship in that town because the the mine literally gave people houses right and um and so my exposure to entrepreneurship came much much later so in approximately 10th grade when it was like oh gosh i better figure out what i want to do with my life i really thought okay well i can be a lawyer or i can be a doctor because those are like the things that i hear about that people who do well in school do right right and um and i was better at math than the other stuff you know like like literature or writing and things. And I thought, you know, I think I would like science better. And so I thought being a doctor would be a cool thing to do. But literally it was sort of an, almost an arbitrary decision. I also knew that I wanted to make good money because I thought the doctors made a ton of money. And I also thought that they would be their own boss. And so I didn't want to be beholden to a boss. And so I thought I'm going to be my own boss and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to be a doctor. So that's kind of where it came from. And did I want to help people? Yes, but I can't say that was my primary motivation. (laughs) That wasn't the primary (laughs) motivation. It was more very practical. It was a very practical decision. The other big thing is that I wanted security, which goes against being an entrepreneur completely, but that I wanted a job. I wanted a flipping job when I got out of school because I was paying for this myself, did not have any financing from my parents. Just, we were kind of not that, we were just very middle class, lower middle class. And I said, well, I'm going to do this all on my own. I don't want some Bachelor of Arts that doesn't get me a job and I'm working at the Starbucks. Um, so I wanted a job title when I got out. So did you make good money and were you your own boss? Uh, initially, no and no. <laughs> so, um, you know, the earning, the original salary of a doctor when you first start is actually not that much, especially in primary care. It's gotten a lot better, but yeah. And you're not your own boss at all. Um, In Canada, where I'm from, I thought you would be your own boss. And you kind of are in terms of that, like you just hang out a shingle and you're, you know, a single office. 
Um, but the government is your boss up there. You know, they pay you. And so then here, um, you know, it's you're generally an employee and you join a group. There's very few docs that just kind of are their own bosses. And I'm really glad I didn't try to go down that route because I don't didn't know a thing about running a practice or the business side of things because we do not learn that in medical school. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy that you learn all the medical piece, but you don't learn the business part. No, I think we got one day near the very, very end of our residency when we were practically checked out, you know. Oh, by the way, here's how you start a practice (laughs) in like eight hours. So you're a doctor, you make good money, um, you're surrounded by other people that make good money, but you get in real estate and you see that there's a different world. Like to the listeners, say there's a listener out there that they have not invested. They, they maybe re- they read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or somebody told them they should invest in real estate, but there's just that skeptical side. Like, what do you tell them? Well, I have people ask me um, when I talk to them about an investment, they ask me, well, is it guaranteed or insured? You know, is there any government insurance on this? And I said, no, there's not. It's considered a private placement. It's its own category in the Securities and Exchange Commission rules, and there's no guarantee. And when you look at the private placement memorandum, you're going to see a whole bunch of like a bold print about how risky this is. But when you invest um, in really any of the paper assets except for the savings accounts up to a certain amount that are FDIC insured, nothing is nothing is insured or safe. And so, you know, my personal feeling is that a tangible asset is is safer than than paper assets in the stock market, um, whereby they consider that anything that is risky will get you higher returns and anything that is safer will get you lower returns, like your savings account, your money market account, you know, stocks, mutual funds. Um, bonds and then up to junk bonds and options trading, you know, like those are kind of like, okay, that's going to make you more money. It doesn't have to be that way. And it just takes a little bit of education and a little bit of learning and then getting a good network together to, to, to do really well in real estate. So I completely agree with that. But now somebody doesn't understand the differential, like what are the returns? So like if you put your money in, in the bank, right? What what are you making? Fifteen basis points, twenty five basis points, fifty basis points. You know you're making less than definitely less than one percent, right? What's your experience in say syndications? The average annualized returns on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, well, you, you look like you're looking at a spreadsheet. I, right now. I, I was like, ah, I'm not as prepared as I should be. Um, I did just uh, a kind of compile the returns of my investments so far, which includes nine exits. And so I've been a general partner in, um, I think, uh, 24 syndications and I've had wow. nine exits. And so I was just compiling the returns and um, and I had a nice graphic that I, you know, put away and I can't find it right now. But the uh, basically the average hold time is like, just under 30 months and the average uh, return IRR is over 30%. And so, I mean, that's, that's pretty darn good. And as you know, I'm sure your listeners know, IRR takes into account the time value of money. Um, So it's, yes, 32% for the IRR. And um, so that's a damn good return, you know, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) Absolutely. And the thing is with these deals, like you have to get asked, 
Like you have to be on somebody's investor database list. Like, or you don't even get asked. I mean, I was, until four years ago, I didn't even know how to get involved with private placements. Now my email box is flooded with them. Overflowing, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're like, why didn't I hear about this? Right. Why didn't my why didn't my financial advisor tell me about these investments? You know, is the question that I had and a question that people ask me. And it took me a while to figure it out, but I learned that financial advisors have their lane and their lane is in their licensure usually. And they probably some of them are able to give advice on private placements, but many of them aren't comfortable with it or they don't know about it. And so they're not going to give you advice on that. Yeah. And and some of the words are just scary. Private placements, like, oh my gosh, that's like for other people. Uh, syndications, it's a scary word until you just realize, hey, it's just a bunch of people coming together to buy an asset that's larger than you could buy on your own. I mean, a partnership. So, it's a partnership. Yeah, it's just a partnership, you know, mm-hmm. but it sounds like it's really complicated. Mm-hmm. But hey, you've done so much. What's the next big stretch goal? Well, um, my next big thing, um, apart from continuing what I'm already doing, is um, I'm going to become an investment advisor representative. So, what does what does that mean? Um, it's an investment advisor, so a financial advisor, basically. Um, so there's a, a, a securities exam that you can take um, called the Series 65, and that's a law exam. And when you take that exam, then you are eligible to become an investment advisor. And so. I did take it a couple of years ago with the thoughts of maybe becoming that a wealth advisor for physicians or something like that. Um, I didn't do much with it. It sat on the sidelines and just recently I've joined up with a, with a company that I'll be working with. So I'd like to try my hand at that. What's the, you know, what's the benefit or what's the attraction to, to getting that? Well, um, I'm, I'm trying to learn my, you know, I'm, I always like to learn. And right. um, although writing that that law exam about the stock market, which was what it was primarily about, was not fun. Uh, it was a very difficult exam. I learned a lot from the retirement account side of it, but the whole options trading and all that and the legal jargon. I was like, thank God I'm not a lawyer because it's tough. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to try providing, I, I feel like at this point with all of the iterations of different advisors that I've gone through, the different masterminds I've been in for investing, I feel like I have a lot of knowledge. And so I feel like I could give back in that way to help other people um, kind of like structure their roadmap to financial wealth, you know, where it's like, okay, I've already done all these things. And if I just rattle them off to you, they'll completely overwhelm you. But um, there is a stepwise process that you can go through. And to be official in terms of having that uh, license allows you to actually give advice without getting into hot water with SEC, which we all want to avoid. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so outside of work, what do you like to do? I know you like to fly. Yes, what, what I, else? I do. What? Uh, we, um, as a family, we love to go traveling, go to the beach and go hiking. You know, we've got a beautiful country down here in, in Southern California. And um, we we have a camper van, go, you know, road trips and things like that. Awesome. So camper van. So my wife and I bought an RV and we're tra- traveling around. And so where's the furthest you got? Do you stay in California? No. Um, well, typically we go up as far as say like Yosemite or Utah for me, but my husband and son made it all the way to the eclipse in Oregon a couple of years ago. So that's Very. really far. 
Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I look forward to doing more deals as partners with you. Um, I know that you're a class act and that you're out to help other people. You know, what's the best way for people to get to know you a little bit better? So you can go to my website. It's vmdinvesting.com. And there's a link to my calendar there. And you can also just email me directly at vanessa at vmdinvesting.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, listeners. I hope you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 